from Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 8 to 11. So I'll just give you a second to look at that if you want to read along. From page 1234. To the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Please join with me as we pray for the persecuted church. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we read the words to the church in Smyrna, our thoughts are brought to Christians across the world today who are persecuted because they have come to faith and life in you. We pray this evening for our brothers and sisters across the world who risk livelihood, <coughs> reputation, security, their homes, possessions, and their own lives and the lives of their families because they have declared you as their Lord and Saviour. When we look at the horrors they experience and the experience of fellow believers, we are struck by how complacent we can be in our freedoms and our privilege and how often we can forget those we call brothers and sisters who are suffering for sharing the gospel. Lord, we're sorry when we're complacent and Lord, we're sorry when our hearts are hardened to the plights of Christians across the world. Lord, give us hearts that are burdened to pray for the persecuted church and see our place in the ministry of sharing your gospel in these countries by praying for your people there and the message they have to bring of joy and of new life. While we do not know all of their names or even any of their names, you do. You know them and you're with them and it's for these people we pray. Father, for individuals in countries like Iraq and Iran, Syria, Nigeria, North Korea, most of the Psalms and so many countries we can't even name. We pray that they will remain strong in their faith and trust you and know you with them even in the worst of physical and psychological abuse. Lord, we pray that they will experience and know your love and your joy and your peace that is nothing like any human comfort can give. Lord, we pray that they will be faithful witnesses to others and the work of those who seek to stamp out your church and your gospel and your name would be thwarted. That you would be with your church and that through the message you have to share through them, many would come to know you as our Lord and Saviour. We give thanks for the stories of whole villages and communities coming to faith in areas of East Asia and some of the Islamic state strongholds and we pray for these new believers. We pray that they will receive help to grow spiritually, will be protected and provided for should the family or community turn against them. And we will pray that they will have courage to lead others to know you. For the leaders of these churches, we pray that you will give them wisdom and guidance as they seek to lead their people to faith and to equip their churches to faithful witness for you and also to seek to know how to protect them and balance looking after them while sharing your gospel. 
flowing through the governments and countries like Iraq and Iran, North Korea, and so many others we can name the list. Lord, we pray um, for those that seek to persecute your church or those that just do nothing to stop it. We pray for a change of heart amongst these leaders. We pray for transformation like we see in your servant Paul. And Lord, we know that no one is beyond your salvation. And we pray that rulers and kingdoms will be changed by people coming to a living relationship in you. Finally, we pray for organisations like Release International and Open Doors who work tirelessly for your persecuted church. Lord, further their work and work through them. Father, we lift all these prayers to you, who knows, who loves, and who is mighty to save. We thank you that you listen to our prayers and lift them to you now. Amen. Would you mind turning to page uh, 1234 uh, and have Revelation chapter 2 open in front of you? Let me pray for us as we come uh, to this passage uh, tonight. Father God, as we read this passage tonight, as we absorb what it is saying from your spirit, we pray, Lord, for your help to understand it. We pray, Lord, if it's preparing us for the future or preparing us for now, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us in our hearts and minds to become clear about who Jesus is, what he promises, and what it means to follow him in this time and place, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hands up if you uh, have heard this individual's name before or know anything of him. Polycarp. Whoa, lovely. I'd love to ask why. I can see Drew down the corner. I can understand why he'd be... Um, great. Well, Polycarp's going to come up on this hopefully in a moment. But he lived from 59 AD to about 156, debatable when he died. So 59 to 156. Revelation, probably written in the 90s if you take a late reading, writing of it. And so many think that Polycarp was actually knew the author, John, in his time. He may, Polycarp may even have been a disciple of John, the apostle. And during Polycarp's lifetime, the persecution of those who were Christians uh, was quite brutal and increased and was quite severe during that time period. And Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna. Did you know that? The passage that we have here in Revelation 2 at one stage in his life. And we know certain things about Polycarp and his time because we have the epistle of, Ignat of Ignatius, Polycarp's own epistle to the Philippians, various writings of Irenaeus, but we also have this beauty of a document, which was a letter uh, that was sent from the church of Smyrna to the churches in the area, recounting or recounting the arrest, the questioning and death of Polycarp. And for a few moments tonight, in order to set up Revelation 2, 8 to 11, I want to kind of share a bit of his story that you might know already, so keep me, keep me right, and a couple of excerpts from this letter. Polycarp had to flee Smyrna at one stage. He went to this farmhouse and then had to flee to another farmhouse and to avoid a capture, cap, being captured. And we're told that once he was arrested, he was brought back and brought into the great stadium or the arena, as it were. And the proconsul told Polycarp this. He said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, 
change your mind say away with the atheists take the oath and i shall release you curse christ and polycarp replied in these beautiful words he said 86 years i've served him and he never did me any wrong how can i blaspheme my king who saved me and then the proconsul goes on and he says this i have wild beasts i shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind and polycarp goes call them <laughs> i can't repent from what i believe in and the proconsul goes on and says to polycarp i shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind and then polycarp said this the fire you threaten sorry the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little for you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly but why do you delay come do what you will and so polycarp was sentenced to be burnt at the stake he wasn't nailed down he requested that he be tied down in order not to be restrained and before his death he prayed the following words and i'm not going to read it all but it says this he prayed father god almighty i bless thee because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and hour to take my part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy christ for resurrection to eternal life of soul and body in the immortality of the holy spirit among whom may i be received in thy presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice and you know something the account of polycarp's death and times are inspiring he's a little bit plucky isn't he to say the least and even though that was a few decades later than what is recorded in revelation 2 that you have before you it gives you an insight into the intensity of the persecution and pressures that faced christians the church at smyrna during that time even though it was further back in time and the questions that we have to keep in mind tonight as we look at this passage is what does this letter to the church at smyrna say to those who face persecution opposition ridicule because they're christians what biblical truths are contained here in these small three verses that are vital or essential so that his people remain faithful in the face of affliction and how do these verses encourage spur on motivate christians who are hard pressed for the sake of the gospel even to the point of facing death so let's come and find out whether those three questions are answered within this passage tonight and unusually i'm not going to start in verse 8 i'm going to jump to verse 9 tonight because i want to start with the title of this that jesus knows in verse 9 because verse 9 says i know do you see it i know your affliction and if you want to look at the other letters you see this phrase i know recurring throughout each of the seven letters to the churches in five of the letters the phrase is i know your deeds ephesus 2 2 do you see it just pop your eye up i know your deeds thyatira 2 19 i know your deeds sardis i know your deeds philadelphia i know your deeds Laodicea, i know your deeds but when it comes to two of the letters pergamum 2 13 there's a different phrase i know where you live and a letter to the smyrna is different too it says i know 
And there are three things that Jesus knows about his people here in Smyrna. The first thing is, verse 9, I know your afflictions. The word afflictions here is the word for persecution. And because of their faith, because of their claim to be Christ followers, Jesus is aware of their affliction that has come because of it. But he also says, I know your poverty. But why were they poor? Why are Christians in Smyrna poor? It is well known that Smyrna was this beautiful city with paved streets, beautiful architecture, and a temple worship of the emperor was common practice. And so if you were involved as a Christian in business or in a trade guild, it often involved paying your dues or respect to the emperor or temple worship. So it was not unknown for many Christians to be booted out of their business guild because they were not complying to pagan practice or worship because of their Christian convictions. This meant that they struggled to support themselves. There are many Christians who were in the poorer classes anyway, but many Christians had their property stolen or destroyed or taken away from them. You see, at this stage, Christianity is no longer seen as just a little offshoot of the Jewish religion. You see, the Jews had a special arrangement with the Romans. They were safeguarded. They could practice their religion. But at this stage, Christianity is moving out of the shadow of Judaism, out on a limb. And so Christianity was seen as bad for society, social order and harmony, particularly within a Roman setup. And so many Christians in Smyrna were poor in poverty. And Jesus says to them, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. Yet... You're rich. That lovely reminder that even though these Christians have very little material possession, even though their status in society has been lowered, even though they may not have great wealth, Jesus comes and he says, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. But you know something? You're rich. You're rich. And it almost seems like a great paradox, doesn't it? A contradiction. How can they be poor yet rich? They're rich because of their union with Christ, his promises, and his infinite resources. And yes, they have nothing of God's, of worldly goods, power, or status, yet they're rich in him. And he comes in the midst of their affliction and their poverty, and he reminds them that they are rich in Christ. And thirdly, in verse 9, Jesus says to them, I know the slander you face. These Christians have faced affliction, which has resulted probably in their poverty. And that persecution has probably come about through the slandering of others. Slander here means accusations or bringing someone's character, name or belief into disrepute or tearing it down by saying something wrong or misleading about them. And the slander here has come from a specific group. Do you see it there in verse 9? It comes from those who claim to be Jews but are not. In fact, they are the synagogue of Satan. It's not holding back here. It's, it's God's word when it says, you're the synagogue of Satan. They think they're Jews. It is taught that during the period of history that the Jews were keen to keep their liberty of worship and freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. And so they opposed and accused the Christians of not being part of the people of God. And you can understand how that would be, can't you? If they believe in Jesus, who was the Messiah, which the Jews certainly didn't, you can see how they were, could have been maligned. 
They believe in this Jesus, this Christ, this one that they claim is the king. And they separate them. And Jesus puts this right here in verse 9. And he says to them, they claim to be Jews, part of the family of God. But in fact, they're not. They're doing the opposite. They're the work of Satan, the synagogue. And here Satan is the adversary, the enemy. One commentator says the following about the Jews and Satan. He says this, the claim of the Jews to be the people of God is removed by the fact that they are tools of Satan against God's true people, the church. And sadly, the Jews did the same with Jesus when he came, didn't they? They claimed to belong to Abraham. Our father is Abraham. That's our heritage. And they didn't recognize who Jesus was as the coming Messiah, the one that they rejected his authority and teaching. And Jesus said to them plainly in John 8, verse 44. Imagine hearing these words. When you think that you are the people of God, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and father of lies. Imagine being so deluded that you think you are the people of God. You think you have a claim to be his people. And then it comes around and says, you're actually part of Satan and the synagogue of Satan in working against God. And it's the same damning indictment here on those in Smyrna too. They belonged not to the family of God, but to the purpose and house of Satan, the enemy of God and his people. In the face of trials and persecution and affliction, poverty and slandering, Jesus knows. Isn't that wonderful to think of as you apply this little verse? He knows the poverty of his people. He knows the affliction and persecution. He knows those who slander them. He knows what truth is. And it's a reassurance to God's people that they're not alone, not abandoned, not left to fend for themselves or struggle on by themselves. Jesus knows and he comes to remind them even today that his people are rich in him. But as we see this first part in verse 9, verse 8 is a key verse in order to establish what it is. Because here this type of opposition and persecution in the midst of it, the church of Smyrna is reminded about who Jesus is. There is a need to be clear about the understanding of who Jesus is. There are two things in verse 8 that is said about Jesus. Did you see it? The first is this, that Jesus is the first and the last. Smyrna was a beautiful city. And like many cities in our world, it has a perceived perception of itself. Smyrna's was this. It claimed to be the first city in Asia, meaning that of its beauty and prominence, it thought, hey, we're the number one in, in Asia. We're the best city that you could ever visit. And knowing this background and much more, Jesus comes to those who are in this city who claims to be the first in Asia, and he says to his followers, I'm the first, but I'm also the last. The phrase or term is only used of Jesus in the book of Revelation. We're introduced to it earlier in chapter 1, verse 17. Here again in chapter 2. The next time you get this phrase will be at the very end of the book in chapter 22, verse 13, where it says this, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. 
the beginning and the end. Osborne, in his commentary, again, helpfully says this. Both titles, first and last, mean that God and Christ are sovereign over history, in control, not only of the past, but the future. So imagine you're in a situation where there's persecution. Imagine you've been afflicted, your poverty, you're worrying about the future, and God comes into the midst of that and he says, you're in the first city in Asia, but I am the first and I'll be the last. I will always be here. I will be in control. And that is the kind of biblical truth that you need to face when up against affliction. It's a type of reminder that you need to hold on to, that Jesus will still be here when this city crumbles. And here Jesus is ultimately the first and the last. Not some city and its residents who seem to have all the power and control when it comes to making life miserable and unbearable. Jesus is sovereign, in control because he is first and last. But Jesus is also the one who died and came to life again. Do you see that little phrase? If you lived in Samaria in those days, you would have known that the city itself died. It was destroyed one time before Christ came. And later it was rebuilt by Alexander the Great. This city, its history and its people, if they knew its culture and background, would have known something of what it was to die and be reborn. But on a deeper spiritual level here, Jesus is encouraging these Christians, believers, by recounting his death and resurrection. Throughout these few short verses, God's word is a warning to these believers. Verse 10, do you see it? You're going to suffer. Some of you will be imprisoned. There will be a certain time limit set on it, maybe 10 days, whether you take that literally or symbolically, that is going to come even to the point of death. There is the possibility that some of these Christians will die, that the suffering, that the imprisonment will mean coming to the point of death. Their poverty may cause illness and death. And Jesus is reminding them here that he is the one who died and who came to life again. Speaking of resurrection hope that is found in him. And for the Christians who's facing death, well, my Jesus died, but he came to life again. And so for the believer, if I die, I'll be raised with him again. Many Christians today are suffering for their faith. Many Christians are coming under greater pressure in their work life to squeeze God and their Christian beliefs out of their work environment and public sphere. These verses are a timely reminder in our times too that suffering is inevitable for the Christian life. That we're not promised a life of no trials or opposition or no persecution. Jesus warned his own disciples. He said this to them. You'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. James, writing to believers, said this. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Peter, writing to the Christians scattered across our area, said this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But underpinning these warnings from, the, from Scripture about the type of follower that Jesus has is the expected words of Revelation 2, that Jesus died and is the living one. And so for the Christian, death is never the end, but resurrected life in Christ is the reality for those who are his. What a wonderful words of who Jesus is 
He's the first and the last. He's the one who died and was raised. And the implication that they are for the Christians in persecution and affliction. And then thirdly, we come to the promises, which you've probably all been waiting for. These great promises that come in these few verses. You see, in the eye of the storm, when faced with with the possibility of apostasy or poverty or real pressure to give up your Christian faith for an easier life, a life which may lead you out of poverty and accusations of others, Jesus, at the end of verse 10, makes a promise to these Christians in Smyrna. He says to them, do you see it? Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He says this to the church, to his people. And you know, in Roman culture and times, when an athlete won his race or his wrestling match, or when the army general returned from being victorious from battle, they were rewarded with the victor's wreath. It was a symbol that they'd been loyal, victorious, and it marked them out for a reward. It was put on their head. They were praised and welcomed back. And it's the same idea here in verse 10, that Jesus is promising these Christians who remain faithful, he will give them the crown of life, eternal life. This crown symbolism or idea can be found in various parts of the New Testament. Let me read a couple just to highlight it for you. Here is Paul's words, and he says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who loved, who loved his appearing. Jesus will hand over the crown of righteousness to his people. Or take James, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Peter, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And then the end of our Revelation 3.11, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, he says this, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. These promises of Jesus are there to motivate. It is here to keep our eyes fixed on what is to come. It's here to encourage these Christians. Trials, suffering, slandering, opposition will do its best to keep our hearts and our minds on the temporal, the immediate, the situation. But this promise lifts our hearts and our minds to think beyond to that glorious time when Christ will give his people, his children, who are faithful, the crown of life. Perhaps it will be with those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. Folks, that's the motivation for any Christian as we journey in this life. We're going to talk in a minute about what it means to be persecuted and slandered. But that's our motivation, to receive from Christ that crown of life, that crown of righteousness, that crown of glory from him. And Jesus motivates his people here in Smyrna with these words, I will give you the crown of life. The second promise of Jesus is found at the very end of verse 11. He says, to he or she who overcomes remains faithful to the end. They will not be hurt at all by the second death. When this verse speaks of the second death, it is referring to eternal punishment. So you have the judgment of God that will come for all. 
It's been exercised. And here it talks about the second death. And here's how the book of Revelation describes the second death at the very end of its chapters, chapter 20 and 21. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Revelation 21, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. It's a terrifying image, isn't it? Of a burning lake which torments people for eternity. And so for the Christian, Jesus says to the, those in Smyrna, they have the assurance that as they overcome, they do not have to fear the hurt of the second death. Jesus has promised the crown of life and not to be hurt by the second death. Osborne again says this, a suffering church like Smyrna needed the assurance that their ultimate future was already secure, even though their present lives were distressing. Most of us worry about the first death, don't we? We worry about getting old. We worry about how it'll all end. And here the Bible says to those who are Christians, I'm the one who died and came to life again. So don't worry about the first death. But also don't worry about the second death for those who are believers, who overcome, who remain faithful. And lastly tonight, the challenge at the end of verse 11, or start of verse 11, it says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'd like to end our time tonight thinking about this. How does knowing who Jesus is, how does holding on to the promises that he makes and seeing the challenge to hear and listen make a difference to our own context, our lives and times? It will be easy to apply all that we've heard tonight to our brothers and sisters in what has become known as the persecuted church. We've even prayed for them and it is right for us to pray for them. But ask yourself this, what is this passage preparing us for in the future? And how does it challenge us now? Perhaps in the way that we avoid suffering at home, at school, in university, at work and even in the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ will divide people. It will cause some, for some great joy, receive it in, but others will be antagonistic as the lordship of Jesus is told. It will cause a mix of responses when Jesus is declared the way, the truth and the life in a pluralistic society, in a tolerant, intolerant society. The question is this, are you experiencing suffering as a follower of Jesus? Are you prepared in your heart and mind for that opposition or that suffering or persecution? If so, what will you cling on to? What will be your motivation to stay loyal and faithful to Christ if it is coming or if it will in the future? I mentioned at the prayer meeting two weeks ago that I had the opportunity to see the film Silence. I don't know if some of you have seen it by uh, Martin Scarcozzi's directed and, and Liam Nielsen, who's, who's a cameo really in it. It's about how Christians in Japan survived and were thriving in some cases at one stage. And then the Japanese authorities 
crack down on it. And there are some moments in that movie that are hard to watch as men are hung on crosses where they drown because the incoming sea took them over. Others are hung upside down with their faces in pits and they're called to recant their faith. And then there's a moving scene where one of the Christian priests is called to step on an image of Jesus as a sign that he's given up his faith. And something deep inside you goes, don't do it. Almost within me, I was like this, please don't do it. And then he does. I've ruined the film. (laughs) And he does. And he gives up and then he goes into this kind of world of, of, of being involved with the Japanese. And you never really know whether he's fully apostatized or not. But you know something, all the way through that movie, it forced me to think, what is the future for Christians? If it was like that it was in Japan a couple of years ago, what will the next 30 years be like? Would I survive? Would I be loyal? Would I have given up? What would you have done in those circumstances? Would you have remained loyal to Christ or would you have wilted, reneged, chose to disown him because it was easier? Our generation and generation that's coming up next needs to be prepared to hold true to Christ and his word. We need to be prepared to suffer and face slander. People frowning at us, neighbors thinking we're mad or uncomfortable with us. Even court being maligned as bigots, homophobic, haters of people. In the Republic of Ireland, when they had the same sex vote, there are many Christians that were afraid to speak up because they were called haters of people. As you read the gospel, it says, love God and love others. And to be called a hater of people actually goes against the gospel um, tenets of the gospel. And yet that's what many in the Republic of Ireland were told. You hate people. Surely you want this vote to come true. We need to be praying for the next generation If you're an older generation, pray that they will be prepared to be faithful. Because we live in a culture that is highly successful in achievement here. We live in a culture that is saving face, is very important. And that goes against suffering. Because we'll be seen as weak. We'll be seen as those who have lost faith. Face. And that preparing to suffer even with neighbors or school friends or university or even work colleagues is a challenge to all of us because the greatest challenge will be for the Christians is what the word of God says there, be faithful even to the point of death. God is not asking us to be super Christians. He's not even asking us to be hipster Christians, if that makes any sense to you. He's not even calling us to be into the latest fads of worship or teaching or models of church planting, even though some of them are very helpful. But rather he's calling his church, collectively his people, individually, to be faithful in their walk and love of him. Faithfulness can be perceived as boring, unattractive. But you know something? In the sight of God, it is faith-filled and it is beautiful. This week... In the near future, whenever persecution and suffering comes, in whatever shape or means, we need to remember who Christ is. He is the first and the last. He is the one who died and came to life again. We need to remember Jesus' promises 
for those who remain faithful and overcome that he gives the crown of life and no second death will hurt you. The Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, prayed to God that day as he was about to be burnt at the stake. I bless thee because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and honor to take my part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. You see, if being a follower of Christ means sharing in Christ's suffering. And may the Lord help us to prepare for that day if it's not already here, both in our work, in our home, and even in our church. Let me pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you tonight for your word to us. And Father, we confess that we're, Lord, we confess that we have avoided suffering, that we've avoided uncomfortable situations where we could have spoken of you and avoided it because we didn't want people to think badly of us, where we didn't want to lose face, where we didn't want to upset people. And Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for our avoidance of following in Christ's footsteps, of being lovers of people and lovers of you, we pray, so that people may know more of Jesus. We pray, Lord, as we read this passage, it is easy for us to think of our brothers and sisters across this world, and we pray that they would know Jesus as the first and last, the one who died for them and came to life again, the one who will give them the victor's crown and the where no second death will have an impact on them. But Lord, we pray as we come into our own times that, Father, you'll prepare our hearts and our minds to remain faithful to you, that we will overcome. Lord, we'll make mistakes, we'll doubt at times. But Father, we pray that you'll help us to see who Jesus is and to hold on to his promises and to face whatever it is that we face in our work, in our home and in our church and society, that Jesus may be lifted high so that one day he will give that victor's crown and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, help us to understand what you're saying to us tonight. Help us to apply it. And be with us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.